Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. You can find us online at notationcapital.com or back us on AngelList. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick, partner at Notation Capital. I'm here with my other partner. Alex, partner at Notation Capital. And we are extremely excited to have Joelle Caden with us today. She is a managing director and the founder of Accolade Partners. And she previously spent a number of years at Alex Brown. She's been running and managing Accolade for 16 years now. Uh, so she has a hell of a lot of experience as a as an LP, and um, and so we're excited to have you. Thank you. So, tell us a little bit about you were just telling us before we started recording a little bit about the origins of Accolade Partners, which you founded in two thousand. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so Accolade is a fund of funds, and we invest in venture capital and and now growth equity managers, but. Uh, I started the firm in 2000 after 18 years as an investment banker at a firm called Alex Brown & Sons, which at the time was one of the four leading underwriters of initial public offerings. And um, when the firm was sold twice in two years, first to Bankers Trust and then to Deutsche Bank, um, I decided to switch careers and and pursue what I had always had a passion for, which was investing in venture capital. And I had done that. Uh, at Alex Brown on behalf of myself and a couple of my colleagues where we would just invest in funds that were started by people that we knew. It was a wow. not a formal effort. It wasn't, there were no fees. It wasn't performance driven. It was just, you know, a pretty small community and people were starting funds and we wanted to help them. And so we invested in them personally. Um, I don't think that's anything that compliance departments today would allow you to do, but at the time right. it was perfectly acceptable. <laughs> And, but you were primarily working on basically tech technology IPOs at Alex and Brown. And Alex Brown had a pretty broad footprint in both software and and in healthcare. You know, on that side of the business, we were involved in other businesses. But you know, for purposes of what we spent our time on um, in capital markets, it was really underwriting tech company IPOs and and right. healthcare IPOs. Any any VCs that we would recognize that you invested in back then? Yeah, Still we around? were the first. In, I mean. First investor in it was then called TCV Technology Crossover wow. Ventures. Their first fund was a hundred million dollars. Wow! And you um, did that as a, as individuals. Yeah. So had covered Jay when he was at Chancellor Capital and went off to start his own thing and invest in that. That's cool. So, so you had a little bit of experience, basically personally investing in funds, and mainly that very was just, little. <laughs> mainly that was just people that you knew that you believed in and Yeah, trusted. and, you know, invested alongside a couple of other colleagues at Alex Brown, and they knew some people, and it wasn't very scientific. Right. Did you invest in startups or mainly just behind no, just managers? No, fa- just behind managers. There really wasn't an opportunity to invest in startups. The first part of my career at Alex Brown in 1982, 1983, I was CFO of... Um, a venture fund called ABS Ventures, which had okay. $23 million under management. So I affectionately call it today the first micro VC. But, um, and that fund was sort of an affiliate of a, the investment bank. And that fund, in fact, did invest in directly in technology companies behind firms like Greylock and Benrock and TA and right. other VCs. 
So you had a little bit of experience on the on the venture side as well. So do you think that that helped inform how you were investing in managers? Absolutely. And, you know, Alex Brown at the time, we were the leading underwriter of venture-backed initial public offerings. In, our, in 99, Alex Brown led or co-managed 100 right. technology and healthcare IPOs. So, I mean, that was all, that was our world. And I ran a business covering venture capitalists called Sponsor Coverage. So, um, you know, that's sort of the ecosystem that I grew up in starting in 82 all the way through 2000. I mean, right. that was, our strategy was to dominate the, the, you know, coverage of venture capitalists and to underwrite or sell important companies right. as an investment bank. Based in New York? No, Baltimore. Okay. No, no, no. Don't huh. be so parochial. Huh. Alex Brown was headquartered <laughs> Well, you're in, from New York. Well, right. But we were headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. So, yeah. Or as my CEO used to say, we were headquartered you know, 30,000 miles above Denver because there weren't a lot of technology companies in Baltimore and there still right. aren't. <laughs> right. So we were always on airplanes. So tell us a little bit about how you got Accolade started in 2000 because I guess this for you was the first time leaving the bank and right. starting your own thing as, a, yeah. as an entrepreneur. Well, since this is a forum somewhat directed at entrepreneurs, um, maybe they can relate to this. Um I think, you know, at the time, I didn't want to continue being an investment banker, and I decided I would try being an investor, and it was a moment in time when um, the NASDAQ was roaring along, along towards 5,000, and technology IPOs were abundant, and everybody wanted to be invested in the asset right. class, and so it was a moment in time where I just decided to leverage what I had done, you know, with the smaller group of people to a larger group of people and decided to see whether I could raise money to run a fund of funds investing in early stage venture capital. And, you know, the timing was great for raising money and probably the worst for investing. But um, I ended up raising $114 million largely from individuals that I knew as CEOs of companies and colleagues at Alex Brown and uh, one institutional investor, and we closed in March of 2000, and two weeks later, the NASDAQ hit 5,000, and then the rest right. was history after that. So and a lot it was of, very bleak right. for the next 10 years. So I want to hear about that. But <laughs> a lot of angel investors, before they start some sort of institutional fund, right. will be angel investing in right. startups. And so you kind of did that as an LP, I guess. Yeah, mm, uh, there weren't angel investors back then. I mean... I mean, in terms of investing in other funds that you could then go to friends, family, institutions and say, hey, you know, I've been kind of doing this already. Yeah, I guess there was some of that. But I would say the environment was so crazy that I don't think people gave a huge amount of credence right. to my, well, there wasn't really a track record or anything. There were a couple of names, you know, right. that we had identified as likely um, funds that would be included in our portfolio. But... I, I don't want to give myself too much credit, but I think the environment was, mm. I mean, it's just hard to remember how insane things were and people were throwing money at lots of things. One of right. them was accolades. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really, it was a moment in time. It was a feeding frenzy of massive proportions. Yeah. So when you when you say you wanted to invest in early stage venture funds, what did, what did early stage venture mean in, in 99, 2000? Well, first of all, it wasn't, a huge community, right? I mean, it was a much smaller universe of, sure. of companies. Uh, 99, 2000, um, casting one's mind back was very different because um, the dominant 
consumers of venture capital at that point had something to do with the communications infrastructure sector. So this was the time when the CLEX competitive local exchange carriers had huge amounts of capital. I mean, companies that no one even remembers today, like WorldCom and MCI mm-hmm. and so Global Crossing and mm-hmm. all these companies that were um, Quest, you know, a lot of the CEOs are, ended up in jail. But um, these were companies that were financed with leverage and they were, you know, supposed to be taking on the, the what were then the RBOX, the regional bell operating companies, and developing the next generation infrastructure. And so, you know, the leading companies at that time were companies in the optical equipment sector. They were in the communications infrastructure, very hardware-focused companies, um, very expensive to start. You know, $50 million of capital were required. It was just a completely different world then. Um, I can't even think that there was, you know, we had taken, I guess at that point, we had taken eBay public, but there weren't really many consumer-facing brand name companies at that time. It was really enterprise-focused systems that's, integrators. That's uh, you, Netscape was 95. But, okay. um, but, I mean, really, it was communications infrastructure, systems, semiconductors. I mean, right. that was really the where most of the capital and venture capital and where most of the returns came from. How did you pitch the first iteration of Vaccalade? I think I pitched it that... Um, I knew a lot about venture capital that I'd been investing in some of these funds. We had a handful of names that were brand name funds that people recognized that had been the leading venture capital firms at that time. Um, and so people, I think, basically took a call option. I right. don't think people gave this a whole lot of thought, mm. honestly. <laughs> so you raised $114 million in March of 2000. Closed in March. Of, I mean, I started in September of 99 and closed in March of okay. 2000. Closed very in March fast. of 2000. And then the whole market falls apart. Right. What? Tell us a little bit about that and your thinking at the time and how you how you manage the capital that you just raised. Yeah. So it became. I mean, having a capital markets perspective, I think, was helpful in recognizing that this was a force majeure. This was not just some minor correction in the market and that we would, you know, six months later be fine. Right. Um, I think the reason that Accolade was more um, enterprise, but actually at the time infrastructure versus consumer focus was that it was clear that all these consumer facing companies were just completely, you know, non, it was all about eyeballs and it was crazy. And, but, but what happened was that the debt markets first, um, failed to provide capital to a lot of the carriers. And so then the whole food chain collapsed. So you could sort of see the handwriting on the wall. But part of the problem was that our managers had already made commitments and were continuing to fund these companies. I mean, you you can't really stop on a dime. And so um, there's frankly not a lot you can do once you've committed to these funds and, and you're trusting your managers to hopefully make some good decisions. But, um, you know, it just was a very difficult environment. And it took... It took a lot longer for people to realize um, how bad things were going to be. And I think, um, unlike today where you have such transparency of information, et cetera, I mean, the world was very different back Mm. in 2000. I mean, really, we didn't have iPhones, so we didn't have a lot of access to the internet and information at the, right. you know, it, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. So I mean, it's hard to remember, you know, what the world looked like back in 2000 because it isn't that long ago. But um, I think it took a long time for 
companies and people to realize just how long this was going to go on. And frankly, I don't think, even though we modified our strategy some and started investing in some growth equity managers alongside early stage venture capital, recognizing that there wouldn't be an IPO market, I don't think... I mean, I certainly never thought it wouldn't be for another decade, basically, right. that we could take a I mean, really, it was 10 years. And that's how long it takes once you've destroyed an asset class. You know, it takes 10 years to come back. For people to actually sort of one generation, basically, of, of, of a professional to forget what happened. Right. And people still today, I mean, you read about, well, is the technology bubble today like it was in 2000? And you're sort of like, wait a second, this is 16 years later, and we're still talking about the bubble, mm-hmm. right. uh, which happened 16 years ago. Right. So, so we're good. <laughs> it takes a we're long good. time. <laughs> so in some ways, though, if you had just raised a first fund and then the market falls out to a certain degree that might be maybe the best position to be in because you have all this capital dry capital well part of the problem is we had made commitments to managers because we weren't marketing a blind pool so our manager we had made commitments but once we make a commitment to a manager there's not a whole lot you can do so you commit to the manager and the manager typically has a five-year period, which is their investment period. These funds all have 10-year lives with some you know, extension provisions yeah. thereafter. But the investment period typically is the first five years, and then the second five years is for you know, follow-on financing in some of these portfolio companies as well as the opportunity to exit these companies. So you know, we had made commitments to these managers, and um, I think part of the problem, which is just hard to think about today, is you know, their domain expertise became irrelevant because there were no buyers for the things mm. that they were making. And once you start these things, you know, it's hard to stop them on a dime. And I think nobody knew that this would go on for as long as it did or that, you know, Quest would go bankrupt and WorldCom would go bankrupt and MCI would come up. And these companies went bankrupt. I mean, they, right. you had $50 billion market cap companies disappear. So, like, there was no way of knowing that. So I think, you know... Uh, I guess we should have looked at the purchase orders of Quest and realized that they were, you know, the size of the GDP of a small nation. I mean, every single startup had a $50 million purchase order from Quest. Right. So it was just, it was hard. It was just hard to see all of that um, at that moment in time. Although we did, you know, for those commitments that um, hadn't been made, we did switch to investing in growth equity managers who were investing in companies that wouldn't be dependent on the capital markets for access to capital. Okay. So you did kind of pivot a We a did bit pivot some, the, but we already fund. had made, you know, too many commitments to early stage managers. How did how did you weather the storm? You know, so you raised the first fund. When did you raise the second accolade fund? Not until five years later. Five years later. Which is a very long time. Mm. Right. <laughs> so tell us a little I mean, was it just you at the time? Uh, no, there, we had, I had a handful of people working with me, but it was clear that, you know, I mean, accolades sort of started backwards, right? We got $114 million and then we were going to build a firm, but then it became clear that we weren't going to be raising a second fund. So it was hard Mm. to recruit in people because, you know, we weren't sure we would have additional capital down the road and actually have a firm. So for all practical purposes, you know, the institutional, uh, part of Accolade really started in 05. And so the years from 2000 to 2005 were pretty grim because after 99 and 2000, we had 9-11. So just Mm -hmm. as the economy was beginning to turn and our companies were starting to better, 
in 2001, you know, then in, and then in September we had 9-11 and after that all bets were off for the next couple of years. So um, it was really a very devastating period to try and, you know, keep your head above water as you were not only looking at, you know, a, a nation that was in shock, but also, you know, your asset class was completely right. out of favor. Right. And so you're running the fund. How did you just psychologically get through that, so, that period? So, you know, basically spent a lot of time traveling and talking to managers and trying to figure out, you know, what we could do, you know, managing money that would make our investors money. And so that's where we really thought a lot about investing in uh, growth equity managers and software where, you know, companies were bootstrapped and c were not as leveraged to the capital markets and, and also, um, you know, continued to believe in software and continue to believe that software-based companies could get to cash flow break even on a less, less capital than an infrastructure-based mm. company. And so, um, and also thought, you know, the space was less competitive. And, and so that was just a really fortunate switch. But continue to invest in early stage venture capital as well, um, and sometimes you know the best funds come out of right. bad periods. So, right. because there is a scarcity of capital, and 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 so our two thousand five fund of funds is the number one performing fund of funds among seventy two fund of funds because wow. you know it was at a time when there wasn't, I guess, those managers that actually did put capital to work, you know, made some great investments. And that was the Facebook fund for Excel and mm. uh, fund, fund that JMI started it for ServiceNow, which was, you know, has gone on to become, you know, extraordinary enterprise-facing company, almost as successful as, in terms of return, as right. Facebook. You know, a company wow. nobody has heard of, but, right. I mean, they made 160 times their money on it. Facebook was 259. Not that you're... Counting. Not that we spent a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> Actually, if we had held it, it would have been a lot more. <laughs> what was the sort of geographic distribution of the investments you made in that time Yeah, period? so that's a good question. So initially, when I started Accolade, I thought it was important to be diversified geographically. And, and what one of the lessons learned in Accolade 1 was it really didn't matter where the venture fund was. It mattered more, you know, what their investment focus was. So even mm. though we had funds all over the place, you know, their correlation was basically one because they were all investing in the same mm. sort of areas. Right. And that's one of the problems with venture capital as an asset class is it's very thematically based asset class always. So there are always, you know, sectors that are really dominant where all venture capitalists invest. So at that time, it was all sort of communications infrastructure related today. You know, people invest in, I'll make, you know, pick a few categories, internet advertising based companies or security companies or um, cloud based software companies. Um, and so it really doesn't matter where the venture capitalist is. What matters is, you know, what are they investing in and how correlated are your portfolios to each other? Because, you know, the, there are things that, that drive early stage investing. And so, and I mean, you guys know the themes more than I do, but it doesn't matter where you are. That's, I mean, certain regions will be more, you know, media focused and Silicon Valley will be maybe more technically focused, but you'll see a lot of the same kinds of deals mm. no matter where you are. So in other words, all the VCs are investing in the same stuff, even yeah, though they like exactly. to think they aren't. Well, I mean, different ones have different... Um, 
strengths, right? You know, some are more infrastructure enterprise focused. Some have more, quote, consumer DNA or only do consumer-based deals, you know, marketplaces or um, next generation retailers or whatever. But, but in general, there are certain themes that are, you know, five to 10 that dominate or the capital is consumed by five to 10 areas. So the market's turning in 2005, and you're coming out of it. How do you? How did you make the trans transition into you know what you view as an institutional fund of funds? And what were the what were the turning points that allowed you to do that? Um. So you know sometimes it's like revisionist history because this is ten years later, and um, you know being honest, it was just a fight for survival. Um. You know, we wanted to have a shot at doing this right. And so um, having identified some of these growth equity managers and, and really taking risk on some managers that were pretty young um, that were raising fund two. We have a lot of fund twos in, in Accolade two. Hmm. Um, and really finding people that were as hungry and as driven as we were to be successful. Um and then, you know... And what type of... What funds were those at the time, if you can say? So, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, in healthcare, it's Orbamed Advisors um, here in New York. Um, it was firms like um, Tomo Bravo and Software, Excel KKR and Software, JMI. I mean, these were not household names. And so... But you're backing teams where you had conviction that they had distinct domain expertise, and they they too were trying to build their yeah. reputations and their funds. And so, um, we were very fortunate to get a capital partner. And you know, looking back, I have no idea why they gave us fifty million. We we managed to raise a hundred million from a hodgepodge of institutions and individuals somehow. For Accolade 2. For Accolade 2, because at the time, Accolade 1 really didn't have much of a track record, so it's hard to know how that all happened. But but then we got a capital partner who gave us $50 million, which was, you know, an extraordinary stroke of good fortune. Um, And, you know, frankly, (laughs) I don't even know how I got the nerve (laughs) to ask them, would you like to invest $50 million in our fund? I mean, literally made that call. Right. And, um, you know, you're desperate at this point. So, you you know, it doesn't cost you anything to ask the most <laughs> right. absurd question you can come up with and, and actually have someone say yes. I mean, we gave them a fee break. We didn't charge the mm-hmm. management fees, which only charged them a carry. And, um, but we wanted to have enough critical mass and enough capital to build what we thought was would be a well-diversified portfolio. But, I mean, I guess the message to entrepreneurs is, you know. Ask for a crazy number and maybe. Well, I mean, it. you know, not necessarily crazy, but you know, you know, when you're desperate and your back's against the wall, and you know, you you're fighting for the survival of your business, you might as well go for it, right? Worst thing can happen is someone's going to say no. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious about. I think uh, so. That Excel's Facebook fund was right. in that was right. in that uh, second accolade fund that you raised. Right. At what point did you realize, you know, oh, oh my God, this could be, this could be really, really, really huge? Uh, oh, I'm not going to give myself credit for that. Uh, when it went public. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think any, I mean. I, did, did, I mean, did, did, did you get the sense that the managers at Excel at the time, I think it was Jim Breyer, right? That, and like, Kevin Um 
Did you get the sense from them that they realized the magnitude? Oh, yeah, because, you know, the first investment that they made when they were the first investor was at a $100 million valuation, which in 2005 mm-hmm. was like ridiculous. Right. And then I remember Greylock did the next round at $500 million and everybody thought they were crazy too. So, so I think people who were really smart knew that they were onto something there, but I'm not going to give myself credit saying I had a clue. I guess similar to 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 some of the stories you hear about Uber today in terms of the the valuations that they raised at pretty much every single stage looked kind of crazy at the time and obviously in hindsight right uh, and you know good. and there is only one Facebook and there is only one Uber so one shouldn't generalize from those examples I mean those are extraordinary companies and um, I think people who were smart knew what to do and you know knew knew that they were extraordinary. But I had no idea. Did you have uh, did you have mentors or other folks you felt like you were learning the LP business along the way, particularly in your early funds, Accolade One and Accolade Two? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd never thought about that. No, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, we the LP community was pretty small back then. I mean, there were a lot of endowments and foundations, and I think. You know, we sort of looked around, and but I think we learned a lot more from our managers, you know, than we necessarily did from other LPs. I think it's important not to have groupthink. I mean, we did something really unpopular by diversifying away from doing early stage venture capital because we raised money. Um, you know, consultants play a big role in our world in terms of advising institutions as to where to allocate their capital, and they like one flavor of ice cream, so. If, if you're an institution and you need to have exposure to early-stage venture capital, here's your fund of funds that's exclusively focused on early-stage venture capital, or here's your fund that does buyouts, or here's your fund that does oil and gas. And we did two things, and so that was really unpopular because mm. growth equity really wasn't recognized as part of the continuum of venture capital at the time. I mean, today, a lot of managers, particularly bigger venture managers, you know, have big funds that sort of go from very early to growth. And growth equity is a big asset class all unto itself, you know, sort of in between venture and buyout. And so, right. but at the time, it really wasn't much of anything. And so it was really, a lot of people were sort of like, why are you doing that? And we were like, well, because we're going to make money for our investors. And then it took 10 years to show people that we were going to make money mm-hmm. for investors. But so a lot of it is, you know, you can't necessarily do what other people are doing. You got to do what you think is right for your investors or what you think is right. So... Which it doesn't feel so good at the time, particularly when people tell you we're not going to give you any money. Right. <laughs> were, yeah. Were your so your none of your institutional investors necessarily played that role then of of giving you sort of longer term perspective of of the the LP business then did they and and obviously they believed in you so they invested but to what extent did they push back on on your strategy or well the only way they can push back is you know they vote with their dollars right sure. so they don't give you money right so um but and they kept giving you money what <laughs> and they kept giving you money so they guess well different ones did i mean right. we've had a lot of turnover in our our institutional limited partner base because the first fund was largely all individuals and then they never came back, right? I mean, that was a moment in time. It was 2000, sort of a hobby. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I'll give you $500,000 or a million dollars to invest over the course of your mm-hmm. fund's life. But, you know, we didn't really start getting 
you know, significant repeat institutional limited partners till much later on in the fund's life. So, um, I think it's an, another way of asking the question is, do you look to your investors to add any value other than capital? Well, today we do, absolutely. I mean, we have a formal advisory board. We have some very sophisticated investors as institutional limited partners, and we look to them, you know, for a lot of issues on, on you know, where, where we have questions about um, managers. We don't, they look to us to build a portfolio. They're mm-hmm. not, you know, they're not, we're not asking them about portfolio construction or, right. But we talk to them a lot about, you know, what are you seeing in the world? Because they have big portfolios. They invest in multiple asset classes. What should we be thinking about? What what don't we know that we should know? Um, how is your investment committee thinking about our asset class? I mean, we sort of ask them sort of broad general questions. So fast forward to 2016 today. Uh, how does Accolade uh, invest in venture? Um, you said historically it's been a combination of early stage and growth equity. Right. Is that is that still the case yeah, in 2016? I think, yeah. And, um, you know, and today there's so many more funds to choose from than there were historically. And, in, in, I mean, there's a new fund starting every week, it seems. So, you know, we've continued to invest in growth equity both in technology, in software and in healthcare, um, because we think that still provides very nice balance to the portfolio. And frankly, given that venture is not generating any liquidity because people are holding these companies forever, you right. know, at some point you got to start giving money back to your investors because if they don't get money back from you, they're not going to have money to invest in your next funds. So that's sort of how that works. Um, and um, so, but we invest in early stage venture capital, so we have some brand name, well established venture funds like NXL, like an Andreessen, and then we also have backed a couple of smaller funds, you know, the sub hundred million dollar funds. Um, newer managers because we're always, you know, repurposing our portfolios. So, um, so we have both. How did you think about? Well, we're going to switch gears in a minute and ask you how you kind of think about evaluating new managers and existing managers. Um, I'm just curious though. How did you? Uh, how did you think about and evaluate that first uh, Andreessen fund when they were when they were raising a few years ago? So we we were not investors in the first fund. Okay. We were investors in the second fund. So um, I mean, we'd heard about Andreessen raising a fund, and we knew several people who were investors in the fund and had been sort of instrumental in helping them get the fund launched. Um, and and we never saw the first fund. I mean, I think they went to a handful of endowments and foundations. And um, you know, I think we thought what they were doing was different, and um, we were intrigued by the operating company model that they were building that was very different from what any other investor was doing. And so, um, you know, obviously knew of Mark's reputation and Ben's reputation, you know, both from Opsware and from Netscape, and and thought that they had a shot at building an interesting firm and franchise that was differentiated from the rest of um Silicon Valley managers. So we were very lucky to get an allocation. Why do you think it is that you can, it seems like it is easier, not easier, but it seems like it's possible to build what would be considered a top tier firm in a much shorter period of time today Mm. than maybe it has been historically, or you don't think that's the case? Mm. Well, I don't know how you define a top tier firm. So 
I mean, you know, they did something really unique, which was they took all the management fees that they had and they invested it in hiring people. They didn't pay themselves anything. I don't think they pay themselves much, the partners much of anything because they got 100 people working there. So we sort of did the math on that. But, um, you know, that are there just to support portfolio companies. So I don't think there are very many people that can afford to do that. And I don't know that you can build... I mean, you can have some exits, you know, quickly maybe, but... I think it's much harder. I think that's part of the problem today for institutional limited partners is that you have funds one, two, and, you know, maybe somebody's raising fund three and, you know, on a net asset value basis, things are looking great, but on a cash back basis, like realized basis, it's like a donut. So, you know, to me, until something's realized, until I send money back to my investors, you know, you don't really know how the funds are doing. So I think right. it's. I think what's going to happen is that as people come to raise funds now, and then they don't have, you know, any liquidity to speak of. It that's when the rubber's going to meet the road, and mm-hmm. and you're also in a much different environment in terms of, um, you know, where the markets are today, where they were a couple of years ago when people were, I think, more willing to take a call option on a newer manager. In, in terms of, of people holding these companies private for much longer these days, what are your views on, on what's driving that? And, and do you think it's, it's a, there's something artificial about it? Or, or do you think the market's actually working there? Or what do you think are the, the drivers and pressures there? So I don't, you know, longer is a relative concept. So, mm-hmm. you know, we think it takes seven to 10 years. I mean, the reason we have growth equity is we get liquidity within three to five years and when our managers mm-hmm. make an investment. I mean, on venture capital, we expect it to take seven years to 10 years from the time a company starts till, you know, there's some sort of an exit path. But but, but I it, think it's this, something you hear often though, right? That, that Yeah, no, but I think <clears throat> this whole sort of notion of we don't want to be a public company is sort of nuts because, you know, the values of some of these companies is so great that there is no option out there but that. I mean, nobody's going to buy these companies. So yeah. so I think that's what's discouraging. I mean, I don't think there's – I don't agree that being public is necessarily such a bad thing. I think that, it, you know, they think the capital markets imparts some discipline. But what you've had happen over the last couple of years, and there's a lot less capital in this space now, is – You've had a lot of hedge funds and mutual funds, you know, coming in and providing IPO size rounds, hundred, two hundred, five hundred million dollars. You never used to be able to raise that kind of money privately. You mm-hmm. used to may raise that. I mean, that would be a, a five hundred million dollar IPO was massive. So these rounds are getting made really quickly at you know some of them at valuations that will prove to be compelling and some which will prove to be crazy. Right. Which often also provides some liquidity to the founding Very team. Very rarely. And takes some, what, really? Very rarely. Okay. There's not a lot of that. Hmm. Okay. I mean, not a lot. So we've had no venture distributions hmm. to speak of. I mean, we have charts that show, you know, year seven was when Facebook went public. And, and, and so... And then it takes two, you know, well, IPOs of, aren't IPOs aren't liquidity events. So then they start distributing the stock. It takes a couple of years for all that to happen. So right. you need to go public. Then you've got six months that you can't sell. Then you know you got you maybe you do a follow on. I mean, it takes a long time after the IPO. So um, so I think you know I think. Now, on the other hand, you know, Uber is an amazing company. It's only five years old, so they got plenty of time to, 
you know, I think people just look at the valuation and think, oh, my God, this should be a public company. They raise money at, I don't know, $60 billion. I mean, that's more than the market cap of 25 technology companies. So, but it's only five years old. So they got plenty of time to, you know, I think you got to think about those things in the right context. Um, but, but I think this aversion to going public um, is, is, is unfortunate because if you look at a Facebook, I mean, it's been a good experience. If you look at an Amazon, it's worked. If you look at all the great companies that, you know, individuals can invest in the, in these companies. You know, they're only for people, you know, in hedge funds or they don't have access to that opportunity. That's when individuals can really invest in companies. It's, it's a much more democratic yeah. process. You want to think about it that way. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a shame. I mean, it seems like most of the wealth creation that has uh, been a part of technology companies and private companies has not been accessible to the to the retail investor. Well, particularly now, right. like 99% of it is in, you know, is goes to institutional investors yeah. and maybe it goes to your pension fund if you have a pension yeah. fund that's in one of these things, but that's pretty indirect. Yeah. So switching gears for a minute, how do you, when you're meeting a new firm, and I'm sure you meet with how many new VCs do you meet with a year? Just curious. Oh, probably a hundred. A hundred. So meet with a hundred new VCs. <laughs> I mean, a we year. might not meet with them. We might have a call with them or sure. one member of my team. I mean, I'm not necessarily part of every meeting. Sure. So. What are the key things that you look for or think about when considering an investment in, particularly a, a, a VC that you don't already work with, obviously? Right. So, you know, most of us, and this is certainly true for Accolade, is, you know, we already have existing portfolios. So we have 15 managers in our last fund, assuming they are doing a good job or, or executing their strategy consistent with what our expectations are. You know, we're, we're likely to continue to fund them. So, you know, a lot of institutional level apartments are making decisions about allocating to, to new managers within the context of an existing portfolio. And I think that's really important to think of. So it may not be that they don't like you. It may be that they feel that they have sufficient exposure to, I'm going to make it up, biotechnology managers. Right. So they don't need one more biotech manager. Maybe they need a consumer-facing internet Manager, so a lot of it is, you know, are you selling the right flavor of ice cream that they want to be buying? So that's one thing we think about a lot. And then also, um, we like to get our, to know our managers over a cycle. So it's we will not invest in a manager that we just meet, and they're closing within three months, and we have a chance to invest in that manager. I mean that that won't happen. And part of that is, you know, these are ten year commitments, and they're highly illiquid. So like. Once you make a commitment to a manager, you're with that manager and you want to feel confident that you've made the right decision to invest in that manager. And also, you know, frankly, barring something really extraordinary, you'll probably invest in their next fund. So it's a really long relationship. Yeah. And you also want to be in a position of feeling like you can be supportive. So we're not going to do the one and done thing. And we, we unlike some of our peers have a lot more capital under management, and they'll take a toehold position. So they'll invest $1 to $2 million in 10 funds. We don't do that. We either commit a full allocation to a manager because otherwise it's not going to be meaningful you know, as right. a contributor to our portfolio, or we don't invest. So we don't do the 
well, we want a placeholder so that we, you know, if your fund does really well, well, then we can invest in the next fund. Right, right. We hear, I'm just thinking now, actually, I hear LPs talk about their core relationships. Right. And then I guess they're non-core. Right. And so I guess maybe that is that is a term for what you're describing in terms of they have their kind of key you know, in, in investments, in, right, in, in in VCs and then some others where they're just doing smaller amounts. Yeah, well, right, or they're adding some managers selectively. Right. Um, but we, we, we try and size our investments in a fund relative to the fund size, not relative to our fund size. Right. So we like we like our position, regardless of the stage of the manager, to be a full allocation. What we would consider a full allocation, and which is what typically ten to twenty percent of a fund. Um, it doesn't necessarily work that way because some of the funds are bigger, and right. we can't get that much of a fund. But right. in a smaller fund, yeah, I mean, definitely want to be a meaningful investor to a smaller fund. What are the key? So. Assuming maybe it fits some type of bucket that you're not necessarily already invested in, um, what are the key things that you look for in the people that are building the right. firm? So we only invest in people who've been investors before. So we don't invest in people who have been operators and they're going to learn how to be investors. Because at the end of the day, we care massively about portfolio construction because that's all that matters to us. We don't own just company one. We own the portfolio. So understanding how to make investments, how to size your commitments appropriately, how to manage your reserves, how to make tough decisions to cut your losers early. I mean, these are things everybody learns in their first fund generally, but you know, these are not this isn't easy. So I think a lot of it is focused around portfolio construction and team, you know, recognize we invest in a blind pool, right? We give people capital. We have no idea what they're going to invest in. So right. we're really betting on a team and to some extent what they've done before, which may or may not be relevant. Um, but, you know, in terms of how they've learned to work with entrepreneurs, what their brand is, what entrepreneurs say about them, et cetera, do they add value? But portfolio construction, ownership, how they think about how much of a company they want to own um, really determines returns. So. Right. So in some ways that is maybe somewhat counter counter um, uh, counter to the prevailing like thought in the market right now where uh, the most important thing for a VC is operating experience, having been in the trenches. Um, well, I think you can have both. They're not right. mutually exclusive. Right. I think they've... They're not just investors, but I'm saying we would never invest in someone who's just been an operator um, and has not managed, been an investment manager and not managed a portfolio. And so, I mean, they might have been a junior person at another firm, right? but but they've been through that process of understanding right. what it is to be a venture capitalist. Right. How it doesn't have to be a 10-year track record. Right. How important do you think having an angel track record um, matters to, to then making a transition into a full-time VC? Well, it just depends what kind of angel that person is, you know? I mean, how involved they were in those portfolio companies. Are these $10,000 commitments? I mean, 
Or are they $100,000 commitments right. where they really were actively involved in helping the... I mean, I think angel investors come in lots of different flavors. I mean, the, the notion of the, quote, spray and pray of making lots of investments and maybe having a couple that actually worked out is sort of almost like a lottery ticket. I mean, that's not a repeatable phenomenon. So right. I think we try and be open-minded on that, but... But but generally, the emerging managers you you would consider are on at least fund two or three for example. Well, we've done one fund fund one, but the but the um the principal there had a ten year track record at a very well known fund. Right. So, um, and it was someone we'd spent two years getting to know prior to their launching a fund, and so, um, you know, this is a relationship business. You know, relationships don't happen in two meetings. So, and we want to be helpful to our managers. So, um, you know, we we think it's a two way street. And so, sure. I mean, it's as much they need to like us as much as we need to like them. You know, so there has to be sort of a continuity of interest. I mean, sort of like when you guys fund an entrepreneur. I mean, not every entrepreneur likes you, and you don't like every entrepreneur. It's no different. Sometimes right. there's great synergy, and sometimes it's apparent that we don't see the world the same way, or they have a different agenda, or Sometimes there's just not a fit. How do you like to work with your existing managers and and be helpful to them? So a lot of times, particularly with the younger teams, you know, we've been very helpful in introducing them to our network. And um, several of our um, limited partners also will invest alongside of us. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there we really feel the bar is really high that we're doing, you know, we're introducing them to somebody because they're relying on our judgment. And so... Um, we try and be helpful in terms of he- helping them understand issues in terms of we've spent a lot of time talking about um, reserve requirements, what percentage of the fund are you investing, um, all sorts of structural things that they might have thought about. Um, certainly nothing on the uh, investing side. I mean, we're not trying to, nothing about where you should be investing or what kind of companies. It's more sort of, you know, becoming more familiar with the institutional limited partner world, how we think about things. So part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is so that folks like ourselves and founders can have a better look into the LP ecosystem. Um, Why do you think historically the LP part of the community um, has been much more opaque and harder to navigate than, let's say, you know, the startup community or the venture community? Um, well, I think to some extent, people haven't really asked those questions, but but it's a much broader universe. I mean, everybody has their endowments, their foundations, their families, their pension funds, and there's a massive number of consultants in our industry. So, Who are the consultants? So, I mean, consultants play an enormous role in advising endowments, foundation, and 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 pension funds in terms of which fund of funds they should use, which managers they should invest in, and so we all have people that we report to, and so. Um, and would that be like a Cambridge Associates? Cambridge or, Associates or a firm dominates, like you know, the endowment and foundation work, but you right. have, you know firms like Hamilton Lane that is very. Um, dominant in or an Ennis Knopf or um, I mean and then there are lots of smaller consultants I mean everybody every investment committee tries whether it's a pension fund or an endowment has somebody there in some capacity Hmm. sort of 
to help them in terms of benchmarking and performance, maybe not manager selection, but so, you know, and everybody at an endowment and foundation has an investment committee, usually with some pretty important, sophisticated people who are pretty opinionated about things. So we all have people that we work for. So right. I don't think it's necessary. I think people haven't asked those questions, but but um, the nature of the group that invests in this asset class is pretty diverse. And then you have corporations, right, increasingly. And now increasingly you have foreign corporations that are very active participants in investing directly in portfolio companies and sovereign wealth funds that are investing in venture funds. And so it's, and it's global. It's a huge number of people that are involved in this whole exercise. So I think it's not as, is not as easy as sort of defining the relationship between the entrepreneur and the venture capitalist. It's, you know, what limited partner are you talking about? Who do they report to? What's the nature of the advisory system around those people? It's not like an N of one where, mm. you know, there's one way of doing things. Everybody mm. has um, different metrics. So I'll give you an example, which is um, pension funds care a lot about internal rate of return. I care about multiple of money. So we have completely different ways of evaluating managers. So they want to show returns on paper and my view is until it's realized right and that and is so that like, because that's the, how they're compensated or yeah right yeah and how they're benchmarked relative to their peers which is right. the most important thing to them is benchmarking so i mean it just depends you know everybody works for somebody and you have to understand what's the mindset of that person and by the way I'm going to be at my company 10 years from now. Chances are the purpose of making that investment today and name the fund won't be there five years from mm. now because they're an employee and they want to work for a bigger firm or they want to do something else or they're going to retire mm. or they're not going to invest in that asset class five years from now. So it's just a very, it's not a homogeneous world. How important that that simple fact that you're going to be doing this 10 years from now, how how important is that, do you think, to the manager, to the VCs that you work with? Yeah, I think it is important. I mean, I think that's why historically endowment and foundations, you know, have benefited from better allocations because those they have a long-term try on horizon. They really understand what the manager does. Whether that specific person is going to be there, maybe yes, maybe no, but that institutional franchise will continue. I think it's really important. We look a lot like our managers. I mean, we're a small team. We're aggressive. We're hungry. We're focused. Um, they get it. So, um, and also the size of allocation that we need is very different than pension funds need a hundred million dollars in order to move the needle on right. anything. I mean, if you're managing thirty-five billion, the Lockheed Martin pension fund is thirty-five billion dollars. Right. They can't make five million dollar investments. Right. It's not going to matter, even if it's a twenty x fund, which it won't be. But. So. so you think, so, I mean, a lot of folks talk about the importance in venture capital in terms of returns uh, in 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 keeping fund size small. So a lot of folks talk about how um, as VCs over the recent years have raised larger and larger funds, and many funds recently are billion, two billion plus, um, it's obviously more difficult to provide really great returns. Do you, one, do you think that's true? And two, how do you think that about that as it relates to your own fund to funds? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't, the answer is I don't know that we know because 
all of these sub $100 million funds, the predominance of them has been raised in the last five years and none of them is fully realized. So right. we have no way of knowing whether that's true. You know, on an IRR basis, they probably look better today on a net asset value, you know, basis. But I mean, it's all pretty meaningless. You can have, you know, you can do a seed and have one series B be fantastic, but is that company going to be here five years from now? Who the hell knows? So, so I think, you know, the jury's out. I do think there is something to, um, you know, I don't necessarily agree that fund size, I mean, Cambridge has all the data, right? So um, some big funds have done pretty well historically for a long period of time. There are very few funds that have ever done over 5X. I mean, most people will tell you doing 3X is hard. So I think regardless of size, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, I think you're better off investing in a well-established firm that's done 3X a couple of times mm. than taking a flyer on a first-time or second-time fund that tells you, you know, when people manage 35 to $50 million and tell me that we're, they're looking for a 3X fund, I lose interest immediately because, like, why should I take that level of risk? Right. So, so you're think, saying for a smaller, newer manager, you you think, what, the bar should be 5X or yeah, more? Yeah, I mean, or at least somehow or another, they should be taking sufficient risk to get there. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, why bother? Why would right. you do, on a? I mean, we're asset allocators on a risk-adjusted basis. My growth equity managers, within three to five years, have given me close to three x. Why wouldn't I do that? Sets the bar high for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I do want to make the point yeah. that we all of funds only we only invest in venture capital and growth equity. But the vast majority of investors in this asset class are choosing venture arrayed against multiple opportunities. And I think that's what venture capitalists forget and entrepreneurs forget. Because on a risk-adjusted basis, there are lots of other things you can invest in. I mean, if you'd been in treasury bonds instead of Accolade 1, you would have done fantastically well doing absolutely nothing. Because right. that was the great period. Right. Of interest and rate. And taking no risk. And taking no risk and having complete liquidity. So, I mean, I think you have to think about venture capital is a tiny asset class when arrayed against, you know, liquid stocks, bonds, real estate, merging markets. And so I think sometimes people in the venture capital class are highly myopic and thinking, you know, this is the only world that there is. And so people are making choices amongst on a risk-adjusted basis where do they see greater returns, greater liquidity, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis? And so, you know, you have to think about that in the context of a much larger universe. And so that's what most people, most of my peers are paid to do, which is to allocate asset class matters the most. If you read David Swenson's books, right. you know, then portfolio theory really matters. And so... So picking the right manager does matter, but at the end of the day, getting the big picture right if you're managing billions matters a whole lot more. Mm. How much, if at all, does some of this stuff, and particularly the source of LP capital, you think, affect or, or, or um, impact founders ultimately? And, uh, and yeah. should founders be... Should founders be 
um, better understand the ultimate source of the capital that they're raising from. So I think one of the things they have to think about um, being cynical, because as investors, you always get to be cynical, is you know how permanent is the source of capital to the manager that is backing you? In other words, does that manager have the confidence, particularly if your company is doing very, very well, to let you run with the ball? Or do they need to generate a return in order to raise their next fund, and you're the only thing in their portfolio that's doing well? And so you're the only asset that's saleable. So I think you need to think about it in the context of do we have a continuity of interest with our manager as to what they want to see happen um, to the company? And, you know, obviously everybody invests in a, in a business expecting it to do well. Nobody expects that it won't do well. But the question is, you know, what happens when things go wrong, not when things go right? Mm. Um, and if things go wrong in the rest of the portfolio and you're the bright shining light and you're the only sort of liquidity that he can get some points on the scoreboard so he can continue to be in business. I mean, those are, I think, only in that context. How diversified is their investor base? How sophisticated is their investor base? Will they be there the next time around to back them? Is it a bunch of high net worth individuals like I had in Fund One who basically deserted me the minute, you know, the wind shifted and they realized they'd made a mistake? Yeah. You know, are people investing because it's a fashion or or do they really understand the asset, the long-term nature of the asset class, the long-term commitment? Are they going to be there for the next fund because they're already in one fund? Um, but, you know, if you're trying to raise money and you're an entrepreneur and you need capital, sometimes you don't have the luxury of that choice. But, I mean, if you, if you do, those are the type of things you should be thinking about. That's very well said. One last question. So we, we think about uh, gender and diversity. Right. As VCs, particularly um, given the ongoing conversation, what we've noticed, and this might be anecdotal, um, is that although the gender imbalance is pretty dramatic in the founder community and in the venture community, it seems to be slightly more balanced actually at the LP level. I'd agree with that. And a lot of the folks that we're meeting that are running some pretty amazing firms and institutions are women. Um, why do you think it is that that hasn't, uh, particularly as, as allocators of capital, why do you think that hasn't really flowed down towards the venture community and the, and the founder community? So, I mean, it's something I think about a lot. I actually spend time personally um, – at Stanford Business School, which is my alma mater, um, talking to women about um, pursuing careers in investment management and the diversity of opportunities that exist within investment management, you know, to be an institutional limited partner, to be a private equity or a venture capitalist. I think I think part of the problem, I think, is the, is the size of, the, of these firms, even a private equity firm, they're pretty small in terms of the people that run these firms. Venture capital firms are really small. So the end, the number of slots that is right. available is certainly not as pervasive as in the institutional LP community. And I think in the institutional LP community, you can have people from diverse backgrounds. So you can have people like myself who've worked in investment bank or somebody who's worked in consulting, um, who's worked for a Cambridge Associates and understands, you know, asset allocation. Or a startup or a VC. Or you can or, work, right. you know, in lots of different places and sort of repurpose yourself. I think I, I mean, when I worked as a venture capitalist, I was a CFO. I mean, 
I wasn't going to tell some guy how to run his disk drive company. I mean, wasn't I didn't have a technical background. I didn't really understand. I was a young woman talking to forty year old guys who were running disk drive companies. I mean, like that wasn't going to work. So I think, I think part of it is we need to grow the pool from the base up and encourage um, people, you know, women who do pursue careers in engineering and science to be aware, you know, that there is this alternative path in venture capital or tell people who do go the, you know, private equity route to sort of stay in the game. I mean, part of the problem is they don't see a lot of people around who look like they do and being a pioneer is is harder. And so, you know, we encourage people to be open-minded and say, look, you know, it's a very metric-driven business. I mean, if you've got good numbers, you'll be rewarded. So to some extent, it's less subjective than working in a company where there's a lot of politics or whatever. If mm-hmm. you're a good investor, mm-hmm. you'll get paid So or you'll get promoted. So, so hopefully it'll change over time, but it's not, um, I think part of it is, is, you know, it's a risk aversion. People tend to hire people who look like they do because they're small teams and they don't they can't afford to screw it up. It's not like your McKinsey where you expect twenty five percent of your workforce to walk out the door every two years. You know, I mean you just right. can't take that level of risk. So so I think we have to encourage people to 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 do take some risk or to bring some people in as interns or exp- just greater exposure. But but I do think um also pension funds, you know, sources of capital care massively about diversity and in, within their own firms and and also in what you invest in. So I think there is increasing pressure. I mean, Carlisle Group has said, for every man we hire, we're going to hire a woman. So, I mean, it has to come from the top. Yeah. Because amazingly, you can get it done if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't sound that amazing. Sounds, what? Sounds practical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, common sense, right? Um, when you were, st- I'm, I'm just curious, when you were starting Accolade, were there other uh, women peers of yours that had, we're also starting firms like that at a time, or you were you were the only one. Yeah, I, I really didn't think about it, <laughs> but right. I can't. I mean, there. I, I, in other words, has it has it changed? Is the it, in terms of the LP community has the LP gender uh, balance changed a little bit over the, over the last fifteen years? So or I there think, were other women like you at, at the well, time? Well, not running their own firms. I think there right. are very senior women running endowments running big portfolios or running pension funds, you know, state of Washington pension funds. I mean, yeah, within, you know, running their own firms are only a handful. Um, and I don't think there are any recent examples. I mean, there are no recent that I can think of. But but there are a lot of very senior, very accomplished women that are important in the private equity venture capital allocator yep. community. No doubt about it. And CIOs of large, prestigious endowments, foundations, pension funds. I think this podcast is, is 50, 50% women, 50% men so far. Awesome. So that's good. Yeah. Joelle, thank you so much. Thank you. For and being I, so I, I really applaud you for it. doing this. And um, transparency is important to every asset class. Well, we'll hope to have you on the next season. <laughs> thank you, Joelle. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lyons, partners at Notation Capital. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or on AngelList. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. 
Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark who are helping us with distribution and making an amazing product. You should try it, mattermark.com. Mattermark.